The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome back to another episode of Screensaver, a TV and film podcast hosted by me, Robbie Earl, and by my friend, Kyle Sconewell. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. You sound like me on the way back from the screener last night with Candace. I'm almost crying right now thinking about it. I'm so excited. Oh man, I, uh, that was, that was wild. Whatever just happened to me was. I want more of it. Whatever wild. it is, please do it again. <laughs> Here's the thing for me, Robbie. There are so many different ways that we can attack this thing. But I kept just thinking last night about how I am more interested in talking about this story more than I am yeah. interested in getting into like a critical film breakdown because all of those things are excellent, but I can't stop right. thinking about the actual movie I watched last night. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, there are, yeah, you're right. There are so many angles here and there, there are so many things I want to discuss as well. And I'm, I'm with you. I, I mean, frankly, as the reviews have shown, I don't feel there's a ton to critique here. Correct. I have a, you know, a few things that, that I might rate, really just one thing that I I want to discuss, but we'll kind of get to that at the end. But by and large, man, you know, the, the way that we that we do this show is based broadly around three simple questions. So before we get too far ahead, let's first kind of talk about what it is that we are uh, still reeling from. And that <laughs> is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. The second installment in uh, the Lord Miller written, uh, I guess, will be trilogy, maybe more, Spider-Man series starring Miles Morales, but obviously introducing a lot of Spider-Men and women beyond him. By the way, we say that a lot. We say Lord Miller, Marcus and McFeely. It's actually not Lord Miller, just to clarify. It's Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. Right. That's not one person. <laughs> For anyone <laughs> who doesn't know, now you know. That, that, that's That's fair. Um, my screening last night, which took place at the same time as the world premiere, actually, because I watched it in the Eastern time zone, I think I saw the film before the world premiere because I started at seven Eastern. You started at seven central and people in Hollywood were watching seven Pacific. And, uh, I got a little video intro from Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. Did you? Oh uh, yeah, we did as well. Yeah. Kind of fun. Um, it was fun. And did y'all have any, uh, we also had had some folks in costume that introduced it live. Oh, which is, uh, you have which is always a good time. <laughs> nope. I did not have any of that. Yeah. You know, I, I want to point out, we did have a, a different 
set of directors on this than the first film, um, mm. which, you know, always inspires some questions. Uh, when, when you have something that seemed to work so perfectly, sometimes when you remove one ingredient, uh, and, and, you know, obviously the director is maybe the largest ingredient, uh, you never really know what the effect will be. And I was so impressed by the way that this movie stuck to the DNA of the first film, but was not content to kind of rest on its laurels. I mean, it, it, you could tell that there were new folks in the kitchen and that there was a whole new, not, not just story-wise, which we'll talk about, but approach technically, both the animation, I think some of the, 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 the soundtrack, the sound design, it, it felt like the perfect evolution of what they started in, in the 2018 film to me. So, you know, Joaquin DeSantos, Kemp Powers, Justin K. Thompson did an absolutely incredible job on that front in terms of shepherding this. Absolutely. The whole experience was a let's freaking go plus for me. <laughs> wow. As a quick reminder to people who are just finding this podcast, we got a chance to see a screener, but a lot of times the screeners are a little bit different because we don't know any kind of reaction outside of what's happening in our theater. And a lot of times we don't take notes. And so there are things that we are going to miss. However, Robbie, last night, a couple things were different. I did take notes, first of all. Secondly, we are recording this post the social media embargo being lifted. So I was able to see a few reactions before talking to you today. Now, I didn't see any reactions before I posted our social media spoiler-free preview last night, but I did before this episode. And so I just want to briefly go through the categories of what goes into making a good film, something you've taught me, and then I want to get into the actual story of it. But first off, from a music front, I thought the score itself was exhilarating and the pop placements, the soundtrack... The needle mm -hmm. drops were incredible. I can't, I mean, they were bops all over the place. Oh man. And like the, the I can't wait. The, the first Spider-Verse soundtrack is one I find myself listening to a lot. And that's definitely going to be the case here. That James Blake drop midway through, which made Candace really happy. And, and yeah, the Daniel Pemberton score, I thought was a huge level up from the first one, which I loved. I'm not cool enough to know what a lot of the songs actually were, but I know I liked them. I know I like it. <laughs> <laughs> On the acting front, I thought all of the voice actors did phenomenal. I don't know what you thought. The emotion, the humor, it all got communicated well to me via the voice actors. Am I crazy? No, no. I mean, I, I thought that that was... I About halfway through, uh, I found myself thinking how every performance, particularly... Miles' family, I thought it, yep. all of those scenes a highlight. with him and his family, it was just excellent. Like it, the the opening scene with the guidance counselor, which was Rachel Dratch, um, and then just kind of all the way through, like the rooftop party stuff, it, it was, and then, yeah, all the Spider-Man uh, voices were really fun to hear, including some that, you know, for me, I was telling Candace, having grown up with this character in the way that I have, I recognize almost every every iteration and I appreciate where, you know, when when they show the the short spectacular Spider-Man from the TV show in the mid 2000s, they 
that was Josh Keaton, the actual voice actor from that series. And so I, I think there were a lot of, there's a lot of love behind that. And then the actual performances themselves supported the, the weight of the number of cameos they were throwing at us. For sure. We will get into the Spider-Man-ness of it in so much more detail in a second. The last thing I'll just shout out is I also thought the writing and the pacing and the direction were also phenomenal. Maybe a little bit long here or there or a little bit bloated here or there, but mostly a 9.5 out of 10 for me. Just crazy shout out to the directors. As you said, anytime you change directors from the first film to the sequel, it's a risk. And I thought they handled it perfectly, superbly, just really great. Well, because we're so excited, we're already starting to get into the, the how here. But uh, I did want to talk about why we're choosing to cover this briefly, because there are so many movies that are coming out this just this summer that we're so excited about. And we're not going to be able to cover all of them just because of the amount of time that we have both on this podcast and just in our general lives. But this is one that I think we always knew we were going to to have to cover because mm -hmm. the first film was so revolutionary. And I feel like that word can be thrown around a lot. But I truly think, I mean, from a from a patent law perspective, uh, it was even revolutionary. I mean, they they came up with an entirely new form of animation for that film that has been patented that, that they're now building on. I mean, it's like a, the, we've talked a lot about the, the way that they blend hand-drawn art over computer generated art. And I think here, you know, we, we, we saw that shine even more and we'll talk about that in a second, but also it was revolutionary. I think just in, in, in the way that it, introduced the concept of Spider-Man like as a thing that was bigger than just Peter Parker. Uh, and that's such a, in, in a way, a core kind of Stan Lee-ism going way back, even though Stan Lee never introduced another Spider-Man. It was always this idea, you know, that we got in the first film uh, that it could be anyone behind the mask. And Into the Spider-Verse did such a great job of, delivering that message in a way that I think really, really resonated with folks. You and I were always really curious to see what the next step was there. And actually, over on our Patreon and Substack, we covered Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, so if you want to hear that, you can go catch that. But we talked about a lot of this stuff there. And we talked about how it's just such a great time to be a Spider-Man fan and how, you know, this is in some ways the peak of that. So that's why, you know, out of all the, the blockbusters that we have coming both in theaters and on the TV side of things, that's why today we are talking about Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. Couple of huge picture things for you. Why do you think this is the era of the multiverse in general? What, what do you think culturally is going into how these things just go in phases where it's like, I mean, in the last five years alone, the MCU is exploring the multiverse. DC is exploring the multiverse with the Flash. Now Sony's kind of messing with it, but other franchises are messing with it. You know, the the Star Treks of the world. Why is yeah. there all this fascination on the multiverse, you think, right now? 
That's a really good question. You know, I mean, I, I feel like that's a, there's a real conversation to be had there. I, I think about, you know, what that says for our, our general psyche uh, as a, as a culture. I mean, I, I think you look back and the end of the 2000s kind of started 2010s. There was the big zombie apocalypse movie push. Yes. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I always feel like that's, it's interesting to see, you know, you go, you go back at, at certain points, it's really obvious, uh, like the kind of sixties optimism leading to Star Trek hmm. makes a lot of sense. You know, this idea that we can kind of do anything and we're coming together in this post world war two world and there's more unity and, and there's this crazy, like lightning fast technological development. So you see like, that's the, that's the fantasy of that time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at, at other points, you know, when things are arguably a, a bit darker, you see, I think maybe the, the fantasy trends in that direction because it's, it's, you can see it's a natural evolution of kind of what you're seeing. And so, yeah, I don't know what that says about the multiverse of it all right now. Yeah, well, with the multiverse stuff, I am the living case, the living proof that you can have your mind turned. If you go back and listen to Friends from Work from three years ago, I was very hesitant and borderline resistant to the idea of the multiverse. But now, fast forward three years, they've convinced me. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once was one of my favorite movies, if not my favorite movie of last year. Mm -hmm. I am coming around to it on the MCU side. And then I absolutely love this. I love this so much that I think I'm not sure it's a better film than the first one, but I am in such a better place to accept this film than I was having watched the first one. So my experience was light years better this time, even though maybe critically there are a few things that aren't as good, but for me way better because of how my mindset has changed over the years regarding the multiverse. I think it's crazy that we live in a day and age where there are so many different Spider-Man iterations. And instead of that getting exhausting, Uh they are finding really, really, really clever ways to work those all in and almost meta poke fun of it in such a flattering and enjoyable way that I leave more fired up about Spider-Man in general. Like this is, the perfect test case of making the multiverse work because I care about all these different iterations. It's not belittling the other characters. Mm -hmm. It's enhancing them somehow, somehow. And that's coming from the guy who was very anti all of that four years ago. Yeah. The first film I went into with, with very low expectations. Like, I think I saw it early enough that I didn't, I hadn't heard all of the crazy positive reactions yet. And at the time, you know, Sony had a pretty rough track record and right. we had the Tom Holland Spider-Man stuff going on, which I thought, you know, was kind of at the, at the time universally acclaimed, I think still is largely well-loved. And so I was just, I felt like it was kind of a cash grab. And on top of all that, I was not as a comics reader, a big fan of any of the, the Spider-Verse stuff that they had done over there because, to your point, I felt that it did kind of belittle some of the things that I liked about the character. Uh, and so there were just a lot of reasons why I wasn't that excited about it. And, you know, obviously the first film 
blew me away and, and disabused me of those notions. But what I, I was impressed by here is that it's even more, in some ways, you know, more multiverse focused with how many Spider-Man you get, how much of it is centered around, you know, we're saving the multiverse. We're a team of, of people and that's our job. But, but it almost felt less about that, like at the core of this movie, like this almost felt more like a Miles story than yes. even the first one. Well, I think making Miles the center of the entire multiverse thing was clutch too. Yeah. Versus Peter. Yeah. I think that allows us to ease into it a little bit. There are going to be so many podcasts, Robbie, that will break down every single Easter egg that you right. missed from right. this film. And there are so many different versions of Spider-Man. But before I ask you a question on that, I just got to again reiterate, I appreciate Sony's willingness to lean into the ridiculousness of that and uh -huh. be self-aware enough, including with No Way Home, be self-aware enough to make that work somehow. You know, the whole time I was sitting there, I kept thinking to myself, this feels like I'm at an MCU project. Like huh. I, I kept forgetting that this is not technically an MCU canon film. But I think that Sony, if you go back to when they first tried to bring in Vulture as a cameo, I was like, oh, I was oh, so right. averse to it. And now fast forward, I'm sitting there watching this going, this could totally work. Like there's nothing about this that is offensive to the MCU or doesn't fit. That's what I kept thinking. I'm, I'm like, I feel like I'm at a premiere of a Marvel movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, just and from the multiverse side of it, I, yeah, it does kind of work. Like, yeah, there's, yeah, it works. And they're I, referencing the MCU. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a world where we would get a shout out to these characters in a, a Secret Wars film. I mean, we, we already kind of did in No Way Home with the the conversation between Andrew Garfield, Spider-Man, and Jamie Foxx's Electro right. about, you know, whether there's a black Spider-Man out there. So it's like I I totally, right. both both tonally and from a, a story perspective. Yeah, I, I mean it in the fit. best way possible. Yeah. 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 Well, and the Donald Glover thing was a big step towards that, right? Because now the ball's kind of in Marvel's court. Now Marvel knows they have an actor who's willing to jump in at least to some degree. Yes. He made that reference in Homecoming, right, about having a, yeah. a nephew in the area. And so now it's kind of like Sony, whether they planned it or not, is kind of tossing the ball back to them being like, okay, do you want to, in your universe, accept that this guy has like a Prowler outfit? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's your call now. And if you don't, you'll look like the bad guy kind of <laughs> to not do it. Which, you know, I would, I would love because that's, again, something that one of the, one of the few weaknesses, I think, of the, of the Tom Holland Spider-Man films is that they have uh, left some kind of dangling threads that I hope they, they come back to. And that's one of the big ones for me. As I mentioned, there were so many Spider-Man Easter eggs. I can't even imagine what it felt like to be you. I caught so many of them, <laughs> and I'm not even a lifelong Spider-Maner. And right. uh, as a Spidey fan, we can't go through all of them. Like I said, there will sure. be other outlets for that. What were a few of your favorite Spider-Man reference moments? 
So the the kind of big picture thing that I really liked was the the intentionality behind the way that each Spider-Man was presented, like artistically, in in that instead of it being a uniform style, you actually did have, you know, we're talking about Donald Glover. We have actual live action Donald Glover in a way that somehow doesn't look like we're watching Space Jam. Like it (laughs) actually fits, which is wild. And then on the other side, you have like Lego Spider-Man. But then whenever you get to like Ben Riley, for for instance, which folks that have played the Spider-Man PS4 game will recognize the Scarlet Spider suit with the kind of torn blue hoodie over the all red. Yep. Uh, Like I loved that they leaned into the the 90s-ness of that because <laughs> yes. that is from an era of Spider-Man comics that is kind of infamous for being super melodramatic and the art is really over the top. And so we got those lines where he's like, sorry, I'm just thinking about my tortured past. And he's got the really well-defined <laughs> musculature that he talks about. Yep. So I loved that. And that's kind of genius in and of itself, right? Because that's a joke that mostly worked for me, and I don't even know the reference. But I can imagine right. if you were a fan of that character in the 90s, it's even funnier, way better. Yeah, and and just imperfectly irreverent. You know, like I, I think yep. what I what I love about all of the Spider-Man shout-outs is there's such a love for the lore underneath all of it that – you're okay with, even if it's an iteration that you really love, you're okay with them making fun of it because it's so clearly written by folks that know those characters or know the character in all these different iterations and care for them. And so I, I thought maybe the best example of that in general was these shots when they're talking about the canon moments, the way that those were... Oh, yeah, yeah, And And I want to talk about that whole thing as a concept here in a sec because that was one of the more mind-blowing elements of this movie for me. But just visually, like, I love that they went back to the John Romita art. You know, Candace and I went together and in preparation for No Way Home, we took folks through a ton of classic Spider-Man comics that I think were were helpful in getting ready for that film. And I think we're actually probably much more helpful in getting ready for this film because we were talking about how many things we had read that showed up here, like the, the captain Stacy death. Yeah. And, but, but beyond that, even like, I love that we see the scene from the Garfield film and we see the scene with Toby and uncle Ben from the Raimi film. And you're so right. How did they work those in without them being so cheesy? Cause it works. All the Uncle Ben deaths, yeah, one of them's the Raimi one. Yeah. Yeah. It should be yeah. so cheesy. I mean, but it, 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 and, and the way it like lines them all up, you know, uh, yep. It, it, where it's almost like dominoes with the same scene repeated. Yep. It was just, that was beautifully done. By the way, if you want to hear some of those comics things, go to the ffwpodcast.com and subscribe to Friends from Work Plus. You can hear some more comic stuff that Robbie's talking about. Yes. Uh, okay, a few of my favorites, Robbie. You know, I loved any time they worked in the PS5 guy. That's insane. That's insane uh-huh. to me. The fact that Genki in the background is playing the Spider-Man PS5 game makes me so happy. <laughs> you caught that, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I loved any of the MCU references. You know, the Doctor Strange 
and that nerd on Earth 999 or whatever. And then, and then he's like, I don't know if Dr. Strange, I don't, I don't think he should be practicing medicine with that guy. Right. Um, or what kind of medicine I, does he practice? But then also, I mean, obviously the Donald Glover one was a huge highlight for me as an MCU oh, fan. yeah, yeah. Uh, but I also loved a couple of what I perceived to be very deep cut references. I don't know if they were intentional. Did you hear the line where he says, the power of the multiverse in the palm of my hand? Yes, yes. That's definitely a shout out, right? To the power of the sun yeah, in the palm yeah. of my hand, which I loved. Like, that's so fun. And then lastly, I also liked Genki saying, I'm not I'm not your guy in the chair. Yes. Which yeah. feels like an MCU shout out. Yeah. And on the Doc Ock front, also kind of an MCU shout out. Uh, when Miles is kind of running through everything and runs by oh, yeah. Doc Ock, you hear the, hello, Peter. Hello, Peter. I thought that was his voice, was it? Hello, Peter. I think it was, or, yeah. or at least it was somebody doing a great impression. But it's, I mean, yeah. they were pulling so much audio. I, I would not be surprised if they just pull, I mean, it's all owned by Sony, so they can do that. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, there are so many, I, so many moments I was kind of nudging Candace. Like, it, it's it's wild. Like, I don't even know where to begin, and we'll kind of have to come back or, or maybe over on Friends of Work Plus dive into some of those Easter eggs at some point, which is not normally my thing, but they were so well woven in that I don't even know where to start on going through all of like the little things that you caught when he's being introduced to folks or even just the little lines like that people know, you know, like when Gwen, the fact that she says in every other universe, Gwen Stacy falls for Peter Parker, <laughs> which is such a dark joke uh but at the very like it's such a core story for peter parker in the comics this idea that gwen stacy falls and he's not able to catch her in time uh well that's fascinating though because i think not to correct you but i think she says gwen stacy falls for spider-man doesn't she oh that is what she says you're right because she's but, talking but, to Miles. but i yeah but i thought that was genius because i as a viewer started immediately thinking well, could she fall for Miles? Does that count? Like, does that mean that her death to Miles is a canon event? Oh, yeah. And and I love yeah. that mystery. That's my point. I don't know, because maybe she was meant to die with a Peter. I don't know. But yeah. yes, I love the discussion and the play on words there. 100%. 100%. I, well, let's, do, do you want to talk about the the whole canon event concept at the center of this film? Well, okay, yes. Here's my closing thought on the Spider-Man-ness of it all. I love how they focus the entire story around the quote-unquote Spider-Man can't have it all, and I have chills right now. Mm. I have chills, Robbie, because you have educated me about the core of this character, and I love having listened to your Comics Corner episodes, having watched all these Spider-Man movies countless times with you now. Mm-hmm that I've learned that that is a core element to Spider-Man is that it's always a tragedy, right? Like he, like no matter what you do, he can't have it all. And so to hear them actually say that really perked my interest. And that I think leads us perfectly into the canon events of this all. Yeah, man, that's, that's really well said. And yeah, it's, I thought that that concept so perfectly captures who Spider-Man is, like you're saying, but even on a level that I don't think has been explored fully in the comics, you know, like the idea that 
Spider-Man is is so defined by this line that we all know about power and responsibility. And it's it's interesting what a conversation about the greater good does in that context. You know, like, how does that factor into that when Spider-Man, who is so focused on, like, he's willing to give up his own comfort and happiness for others. But whenever you introduce this idea of him being able to, you know, Spider-Man is always haunted by the things that he should have prevented, but didn't, you know, so now if he knows that there's a thing that he could prevent and, and sort of like this, he can maybe take away this Uncle Ben-esque moment from himself. How does that play into that when maybe the entire universe is on the line and or, or you know the multiverse kind of depending on how all that works like i i don't what i love is it's uncharted territory and they're they're explicitly calling it uncharted territory and and making miles as important as ever and and, and again that's another thing that i think this film is doing that the comics have have kind of struggled with which is once they brought Miles Morales into the main Marvel Comics universe, I think the character is still so compelling, but I feel like the the comics have struggled to show why he is, what his place is when you have a Spider-Man that's that's been around in that universe in our time since the 60s, but in, you know, a long time there as well. And here, man, like they really make, you're right, they, 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 literally make Miles kind of the center of this, but it, it also oh. feels like because I like, I have no idea where we're going, where we're heading, oh. what the beats will be. That's what I wanted you to say. Excellent point. The juxtaposition of it is what makes it so fascinating because I don't know which way they are going to ultimately fall. The movie makers, I mean. Like, I don't, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if they were going to say, is it kind of the the lost thing of whatever happened, happened? Like, I didn't know yeah. if we were going to get Miles' dad dying in this film. I don't know the next film what's going to happen. Are they going to say that Spider-Man can change the entire multiverse and still find a way to save that? Or they could take a route where Miles saves his dad and it does screw the the rest of the multiverse. And then what does that say from, you know, a lesson on the yeah. greater good? Or, or they might say that Miles ultimately gets to the point and lets his dad pass. Because of the greater good. And I, I I have chills right now thinking, I don't know where they're going or what stance they're going to take. And that's what makes it so crazy to me. Well, and and the the added level, which, you know, when we talk about kind of meta commentary, I always get very sensitive about when that is too, when it's too on the nose or, or kind of so blatant, I, I think it takes away from the story. But here, you know, we've talked a lot about how toxic the Spider-Man fandom community can be really with it, any fandom community can trend this way. It doesn't have to. And there are always folks that are not this, but especially when you get into like the cesspools of the internet, there are a lot of people that will, that will say things like Spider-Man doesn't do X, you know, or Spider-Man is supposed to be X. And this idea of canon events, like things that Spider-Man always has to do or go through and the tension there of when that doesn't happen, you know, the entire thing just unravels. 
versus Miles saying, well, you, no, I'm going to do my own thing. Like that, it doesn't feel like a shot at, at that kind of toxic fandom, but it feels like a, yeah. a response to it, you know? The film is almost just asking the question, does Spider-Man always do X? Does it always have to be this? Yeah. That to me is genius. And, and yeah. yeah, and just last point on the commentary, I don't think it could have been executed any better for me. I understood all the references. I thought they had the appropriate tone. And I, I loved the, the, the rock in a hard place that Miles got stuck in. But I never felt like any one message was too blatant or hitting me over the head or on the nose. One thing that I thought worked really well here, uh, both from a, a, an artistic presentation perspective and also from a story perspective, was the, the spot as a villain. And I want to talk about that briefly because, you know, the first film we had Kingpin, which is a, a you know, it's a classic Spider-Man villain now known more as a, as a Daredevil villain, but one that we hadn't seen in the Spider-Man context uh, in a, a film adaptation until then. The spot is a low level, like unknown by hey, most people villain. That's offensive to him. That's offensive to him. <laughs> He's not just a run of the mill villain. Well, and and it's man, I like so I thought that and, and I love this. I thought that it was going to be something akin to just that first scene. You know, that's kind of what we got in the trailer. I knew that that there was room with the spot for them to do some multiverse things, but I did not expect them to take that character where they did and make it so, I mean, by the end, I'm genuinely afraid of the spot as a villain. Like the way that Good they point. do some of those scenes where it goes to the black and white and kind of the scribbly art, like it's really unnerving. And it- No, great it, point. It just, it, it is one of the many things that kind of builds the tension ahead of this next film. And I want to talk about that, just the way that this ends in a, in a moment. Uh, but yeah. I know there are probably a few other things that we want to hit first. Okay, so in typical Kyle fashion, can I read you a few of my tiny, tiny notes and see if it spurs any conversation in you? <laughs> yeah, come on. An incredibly dope introduction to the Spider-Man Oscar Isaac character, the 1990, what is it, 99 guy? 2099. Yeah. Not, not 1999. <laughs> that wouldn't be that revolutionary. <laughs> um, I, I thought the buildup to actually meeting him was an excellent masterclass in how to build tension without it ever getting like too drawn out. Uh-huh. For some reason, Miles using a Brooklyn accent to try to hide from his dad makes me laugh every time. So when he <laughs> has that whole conversation and he's like, you know, well, I don't know what your son's feeling. Maybe I'll let him spread his wings. It's like, it yeah. works for me. It's funny. That, that whole scene worked for me. It, the, the, I love from the Spider-Man perspective, I kind of like the, even though in the video game, it's Peter Spider-Man that's working with Miles dad. I, I like that dynamic when they're trying to catch the spot. And then the, the whole conversation afterwards, I thought Brian Tyree Henry here did some yes. really, really great work. By the way, to, to bring it back to the MCU-ness of it all as well, I can't believe between this movie and the first movie, how many actors have also been in the MCU that are in this. And it just really shows you the expanse of the MCU. I mean, we got Kate Bishop in here. 
We got one of the Eternals. We got Moon Knight. And there, there's a there's a ton more that I'm not listening. Oh yeah, well, um, and and, Sp- and Spider Punk, uh, Daniel Kluwer, we have from Black Panther. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, I thought the family dynamic side of this was so good and so important. And I'm not going to get super cheesy here, but I think it really was a cool story to tell, to make it so focused on Miles' parents who are still together, who are both still currently alive. And the the storyline of Miles wanting to get out to spread his wings, he spreads his wings only to feel like he needs to come back. And I thought the humor in the family stuff with the grounding, mm-hmm. tell him five months, all of that stuff was really funny. Him feeling like he can't tell his parents was well executed. Just, I could go on a tangent. I'm not going to of 15 minutes on the perfect execution of the family and the importance of seeing a family like this in a movie like this. Yeah. It's which again is totally uncharted territory from a Spider-Man perspective. It makes me think of uh, of She-Hulk, the the line about you know superheroes are a lot of you know weirdly adult orphans. Like you don't right. you don't get this dynamic, no often. And yeah, man. And you know one thing we didn't get a ton of Miles' mom in the first film. Yep. And I loved those scenes too. You know we talk about the scenes that he has with his dad, and I don't want to overlook those. The one-on-one conversation before he goes after Gwen, I thought was really, like, there were several kind of heartwarming, chill-worthy moments for me just between them. Yep. I was streaming Miles Morales' video game on YouTube with some of our listeners the other day, and we got on a tangent about The Little Mermaid, and we were talking about Disney and how Disney handled parents of all the princesses and stuff back in the day. And then it just got us thinking, who are the best Disney parents? And it was crazy how hard it is to find any kind of actual good role model. You know, you start going down the list, you're like, well, they're either dead (laughs) or they did something horrible. And for so long in, in any kind of animated film, the parent's death or a parent's abuse, for lack of a better word, was the catalyst to the character, you know? Yeah. And I think this is so fresh to just have this kind of family unit be driving it instead. Uh, yeah. Because now this would go on a list of good parents that is a very small list. <laughs> that's a, um, that's a okay. good point. I, I'm being like slightly funny about it, but I do also think it's important. Um, obviously, we talked about all the shout outs. This is where I want to end the episode. We started getting to the ramp up of the ending of this film, and holy crap, I have so many thoughts here. First of all, when I left the theater, I just had such an Infinity War feeling. Am I crazy? I watched it by myself, but even still, I'm driving in my car for three hours after the film, and I'm, I'm just thinking, like, it's haunting me in a way like Infinity War does. I'm not saying Mm -hmm. it's the same level or same feeling exactly, but I just kept thinking about it. And no one died yet, which is weird. But from the moment that Miles realizes he's in the wrong universe and when he finally outs himself as Spider-Man to his mother and then his mom doesn't even know what he's talking about, I was so confused for a second. Like, why does she not know? And then Uh it's zooming out and there's pictures everywhere. And I'm starting to think like, oh my gosh, what's wrong is something different. I have chills right now. That tension, the music that's happening there. If you go back and listen to the synth bass that's happening, I felt 
so tense somehow. So whatever they did for the first two hours of the movie worked because when I was there, I could not have been more all in at this point, Rob. Like, again, the first movie, say what you want about the comparison of the two. I'm not going to get into that right now. It might be better as a film, but because of where I was headspace-wise, it never worked like this was for me. Yeah. When this got to the end, I was so locked in. And that tension with Uncle Aaron, the Prowler reveal, like when the Prowler walked up, I'm genuinely thinking, like, who's it going to be? Is this yeah. going to be some crazy cameo? Is it actually going to be his dad, I thought, for a second? Like, I'm, my mind's racing. And so much so that this film was super long. It yeah. got to the end of that scene, and I literally forgot that we were nearing the end. Like, I was like, oh, no. Like, what? That right. is actually... Yeah. Like, well, well, and, and I mean, I was... I, I like you bringing up Infinity War here because there are some... Parallels. There are some key similarities, you know, in releasing. I think both of those were initially marketed as a part one of two and then both given eventually their own titles. It, it leaves you with a similar tension and this kind of I have no idea what's going to happen. One thing that that is different here from Infinity War, and, and I'm curious to see how people feel about this. I think you could argue that Infinity War it ends on a on a cliffhanger of sorts, you know, in, in that we don't know how the Avengers are going to come back from this. But in another way, you know, a lot's been said about the fact that if you look at that movie from Thanos' perspective, you know, it, it actually does resolve. You know, he gets what he wants and it ends. And, you know, that that's sort of the end of his story in some ways. It doesn't actually leave you in the middle of the action, whereas this one really does it, it ends on like a TV style straight yeah. cliffhanger. And I know that, that there's, you know, Candace and I were talking and I, I think she felt like there wasn't necessarily, you know, there was a lack of total resolution, which I think was obviously intentional. But I was also talking to, to Dan Gavazdan, who we've had on the Friends from Work podcast before, uh, who is kind of the resident, the true Spider-Man expert. And he talked about how, in ways it felt kind of like half a movie uh, in that sense, you know, and I'm curious if that's something, that's the one thing that I've, that I've heard that I feel like is a, I don't know if it's a critique per se, you know, cause once we have the second film, I feel like that, that will kind of go away as, as an issue. But I was curious if that was something that struck you. So that's funny on so many levels. First of all, I also saw, Dan Gavazdan's tweets last night after I had posted mine. Oh. Secondly, I tend to disagree with Dan on a lot of stuff regarding Spider-Man in the MCU. So I am not the one that would typically fall in line with Dan's thoughts <laughs> regarding Spider-Man very often. <laughs> Although I love the guy as a human. Of course. And then thirdly, I do want to reemphasize again just how much I love this movie. So if you haven't got that by now, you must not be listening. And I was so much more invested in it than the first one, and I, I love it. This would be, oh, it's maybe hot takey, but maybe my favorite movie I've watched this year so far. Mm -hmm. But when I read Dan's tweets, I didn't feel offended at some of the critiques. I read them and said, yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yep, I think he's actually right on this. I, I think 
we are total lockstep here, me and Dan. I love the film. Was it a tiny bit bloated? Probably. Were there a couple of too many references that maybe led to some of the bloating? Like maybe we got a little too obsessed with referencing Spider-Man. Again, I loved it. Yeah, I could see that. And then lastly, yeah, Infinity War is a cliffhanger because our Avengers lost. But when you see it from Thanos' perspective, it's not a cliffhanger. The story's over. The bad guy won. That's it. There isn't more to it. That's the difference. This felt like a hard shutoff in the middle of the best part of the movie. Like, right when we were getting going, like, this is where we're really going, movie's over. And I think it's a credit to the film that I was like, oh, my gosh, no, I'm so invested. So, like, they got me invested. But it's partially because I felt like we were finally, like, reaching the climax, and then it just stopped. So it feels less like Infinity War and more like Deathly Hollows Part 1 in that way. It's it's kind of a little bit what I'm hoping Dead Reckoning Part 1 doesn't do. Mm. You know, I'm hoping it's a little bit more of a complete story. So I understand Dan's critique of if you're just trying to say, is this a better standalone film than the first one? I think I would have to agree in, in saying probably not. But... On my preference chart, I was way more invested. Does that make sense? No, that makes total sense. And I think I'm right with you all there as well. Um, I think that this is one, and again, you know, it will depend on how the, the third one closes out, but this feels like something I'll I'll find myself maybe revisiting more than the first one. There are a lot of a lot of reasons maybe why that's true. Uh, I think I like seeing Miles kind of fully formed for so much of this movie, as much as yeah. I liked the origin cool. and as much as I liked the Uncle Aaron stuff in the first film, I really like, you know, I, 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 just, I just, yeah, I just like watching my, like, I love the Miles Gwen scenes where they're swinging through. That's It's beautifully executed, but it's also just, I like seeing, like, this feels like the first, I mean, it is the first time that we've actually gotten, like, the straight up Miles Morales Spider-Man adaptation yep. on the big screen. Yep. Let's freaking go. That, I mean, yeah, that in and of itself will bring me back so much. But yeah, I mean, I totally. That's the age of Ultron-ness in us. (laughs) We like the full power thing. Yeah, well, you know, I just, I like, I think that it's important that we get that uh, and and see what it is that that this character's capable of before he gets like thrown into a, a shredder as often happens in like the final installment of things like this. And didn't you love the whole point of, Miles being unique, like of, of all the yes. Spider-Man there, yeah. I loved the you're a nobody thing because his spider's not from his universe. That whole thing to me was so yeah. cool because I started seeing all these references and I started thinking, but of all these people, maybe Miles is the one that could do it. Maybe he is a little bit different, but also how that tied in with his actual power, like that train escape scene. I don't know if that could have been better. I mean, that was... Oh, man. That's yeah. a Guardians of the Galaxy 3 hallway all-timer for me. That I mean, yeah, that was so perfectly executed. And the heartbreak when he sees that his friends are kind of in on it, and he's yeah. like, what, is this an intervention? What do you... And I have chills right now. Oh, dude, it, it moved me so much emotionally. Yeah, man. I mean, I, I just... I think... I mean, we could talk about this forever, and we can't. We have to wrap here. But it's like, as you're talking, the 
the way that this movie handles Miles and and the mythology there and what Brian Michael Bendis when he was creating this character's origin, it's like you you see when you're inventing a new Spider-Man, which is what Bendis did very effectively, yes, you did. have to ask these questions of, you know, okay, well, how much does he have in common with Peter? How much does he not? You know, like, what are the things, like, what kind of tragedy? Does he need a tragedy? And I love seeing that now made made explicit here and those, like, the, the fact that Miles does have like his dad is a police captain and that in the comics it's Peter's girlfriend that's the police captain and that it's like, I, I love that you see the elements here, but that they're all different. They're remixed and it's because he is the one that's different and that it adds this like, oh, like it, it's, it's the, it's oh, a tension dude. driver and it's, but it's also yep. like. It, yes. It how just, did he it, make him so different and yet still work perfectly? Yeah. And how and how does it all feel? I mean, I, I would be fascinated to read more on this. Like, I don't know if if the writers had this in mind the entire time when they were writing the first one. You know, if if they, I'm sure they didn't know that they would have a, a sequel greenlit initially. But I wonder if they kind of had this mapped out on some level because it certainly feels like a very natural. Like, I I I like that it's not out of nowhere from the first film. Like you're saying, we had the 42 on the spider in the first movie, you know? So for them to bring that back and bring the spot back to the super collider scene and you threw a bagel at my face. Oh yeah. I, I, I'm now I'm just, now I'm just listing things I loved about it. And so we have <laughs> to wrap because okay. we're in danger of me losing the thread, but Listen, listen, that is where we should end the episode. A hundred percent. We should end it on miles and his development and how cool that was. Not to mention, by the way, his shock, his venom shock thing is so sick. Yes. Um, it's one of the most fun parts about playing the miles Morales video game as well. But again, no time, no time. There's so many things to get into, (laughs) but I I have to give one final shout out, Robbie. I, I literally, I would be sick to my stomach if I didn't point this out. I have to, briefly talk about the Gwen-ness of this all. Oh, I yes, thank you. It yeah. was such a compelling character. My only knowledge of Gwen is from the first film and the fact that my daughter watches Spidey and his amazing friends on the Disney Channel every single morning. So I see Spider-Gwen all the time and her drumming, and I, I, I get how that ties in now, so shout out Disney Junior. But, <laughs> like, I thought she had one of my favorite heartfelt moments of the whole film. She had two of them. She had two of them. The one with her dad where she's like, I don't know what to do. I'm not, I don't even know what's supposed to happen or what I'm supposed to do. I thought I was doing the right thing. And now I don't even know if we're the good guys. And I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. That part was really moving to me. And then she spidey webs her dad for the hug. I love that. But then also at the very end, when she does reveal herself to Miles' parents and say, he loves you so much more than you ever could imagine or whatever, something like that. That was one of the biggest emotional drivers of the film for me. So shout out in the emotional department to not only Haley Steinfeld's performance, but also the writing of that character. But then also I have to say, I wrote down chills Gwen because when she finally starts putting it all together and that ramp up, I, I had legit chills. Like it was a chill worthy moment. And the way, again, I talked about how the ending maybe isn't a perfect uh, film ending as far as it being an isolated film, but 
it is chills when she's assembling the team and standing on the top of that roof. Like, yeah. I don't know. Gwen yeah. no, was I, a huge highlight for me. So, I, I, like, uh, yeah. I could go on forever. No, the dynamic also with Miles is perfect. Yeah. Uh, no, so, I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, I, I, the, the whole cold open was incredible on a lot of levels. But I think her universe is my favorite in the way it's presented artistically even like the painted backgrounds you've kind of got like almost like a watercolory thing happening and then even like the fight through the art museum and the way that that works in and the guy being from like the da vinci kind of world like i love all of that presentation i also love the the heart of her as a character and talking about the tension that like the secret she has from Miles and how devastating that is when Miles thinks that that's the only person that he doesn't have to have secrets from. Oh, it's so heartbreaking. I'm sad. I have chills right now. It's yeah. I, I loved, I loved Gwen in this movie in a way that I never have before. Like the spider Gwen character has never resonated with me the way that it did here. And, you know, the other characters that that we just don't have time to talk about a ton, but that I, I loved the way Spider-Punk was handled here artistically and then also character-wise, like Daniel Kaluuya did an incredible job It with the, the comedic timing on, like, what is that? Oh, it's a metaphor for capitalism. <laughs> like, yeah. it was so... I, lo I loved it. And, every, like, Moonbatten, like... So many things that we just don't have time to talk <laughs> about that I hope we can come back to. In. But it's like we've got it. We've got to talk about. It. We have to at least shout it out to recognize that that we recognize uh, what's going on. But yeah, so we'll maybe get a chance to dive yeah. into more of this discussion uh, on Friends from Work Plus. But yeah, for now, maybe you know the the film could have done a better job of of like a doing like a two towers, if you will, where. You have a second installment that still feels like very much its own film. Um, and yes, maybe it's a little bit longer uh, than it needed to be. But by and large, I am just thrilled uh, by, yep. by what we got. Absolutely heartbreaking that Miles feels so alone. He has no one else to bounce anything off. And so he obsesses over his short relationship with Gwen, drawing pictures of her every day only to then see her again, have those feelings resurface to then find out that she's kind of betraying him. Like she's, she's only really using him. That's why she's seeing him again. Just absolutely devastating. Devastating. It's yeah. so good. So good. All right. We end every screensaver episode on what will be your lasting image of this film. For me, I would say I'm thinking of that train sequence. Like I'm thinking of Oscar Isaac's Spider-Man 2099 slamming him into the train and Miles looking down and seeing Peter Parker and Gwen and realizing that they're also trying to get him to go along with it. And then he bursts out of it. That's probably my lasting screenshot. How about you? Yeah, I think mine is probably some of those weirdly early moments with Miles and Gwen where they're swinging together. Cause I, I just, because it felt so, it just felt so good and it felt like a perfect encapsulation of like what I want to see in a Miles movie, like personality wise, what we got from him um, and those interactions, but also, yeah, just visually, even talking about like the, 
the Spider-Man video game and the way that they kind of capture a unique swing style there. Like I, those are those moments that I can't stop thinking about uh, kind of on, on a couple levels. But, you know, this is one of those movies where I, I have like a list of 10 different scenes that keep going through my mind. Well, we'll both go see it again. We would love to hear what other people thought of it. Are we crazy? Did you love it as much? Hit us up with your takes. Go to the ffwpodcast.com and message us there. But I freaking loved it. We have not come up with a rating system here on Screensaver, but over on Friends From Work, I would call this a Let's Freaking Go Plus. I am as into this universe and invested now as you can be as a human being. And so I am excited to see how they finish it, although it might be a lot of years from now. And I'm excited to see if the MCU works any of that stuff in. Hope you enjoyed our coverage of Across the Spider-Verse here on Screensaver. We'll be back with a lot more of this kind of stuff, covering a lot of the blockbuster releases this summer. And there are a lot of them. And so thank you for listening. We always appreciate your support. Please subscribe to this channel, rate and review. And we'll see you back here next time on Screensaver. <laughs>